Welcome to the Wayside Podcast. I'm Robert Killingsworth. The audio for this episode comes from a sermon that was given during one of our Sunday services. We hope you are encouraged and inspired by today's word. Man looks on the outside, God looks at the heart. And it's true, isn't it? We live in an age where pretty much anyone can do a whole host of things to curate their image and how they are seen. That's how important our externals are to us. If we have the resources, we can pay someone to adjust our physical appearance with many options for plastic surgery, a nip here, a tuck there. Even if we don't, all it takes is the right app on our phone, and we can adjust photographs to make us look a little more toned, muscles a little bigger, skin a little smoother, wrinkles a little fewer. I investigated how such apps worked a few months ago, and I quickly discovered that things have come along a long way since I was a teenager. The airbrushing that was the privy of photojournalists and celebrity images found on magazine covers is now readily and easily available to any teen or adult who wants to adjust how they are seen. But let's not forget, our obsession with image has long been the case, well before the internet age. We have always been preoccupied with externals, how people look, how successful they are, how much they have accomplished. If we go all the way back, right to the Garden of Eden, we find the same is true for Adam and Eve. They are concerned to present themselves in a certain way after they'd eaten from that forbidden fruit. They wanted to hide, so they hid behind fig leaves. But it's not just the physical externals that we focus on. There are religious externals as well. The person who uses their church involvement to mask and hide their spiritual insecurity or sense of inadequacy. Who wants to be seen doing the right thing at any given moment, involved in the right projects, at the right luncheons, in the right prayer groups, knowing the right biblical answers, on the board of the right committees. More dangerously, we see it with preachers and pastors It's no longer a surprise to us when we hear about a charismatic and popular preacher having found to project one image of Christian morality and righteousness only to find that masking another of ongoing and unaddressed issues with marital infidelity, pornography, or any number of addictions. One image projected, honed, and perfected to hide a much uglier inner reality. But God isn't fooled by the externals as we are. His knowledge is not limited. He is not bound by what people choose to disclose or communicate. 
We try and be like magicians, using misdirection to hide how the trick really works. But God is never taken in. Nothing escapes him. Man looks on the outside, but God, God looks at the heart. And this verse comes from our Old Testament reading today, from 1 Samuel 16, which is the fulcrum of change in the book of Samuel. It's the turning point. In it, we, are, we come across David for the first time, who is to be anointed as the next king of Israel, even though it's not going to happen for some time. But David's anointing is the sealing of King Saul's fate. His reign is doomed. Saul's son, Jonathan, is not going to be taking the throne from his father. God had chosen his successor from a different family. And while the prophet Samuel is still grieving that Saul's throne will not last, God is ready to move on and get rolling with his new, soon-to-be-anointed one. So Samuel heads out to Bethlehem, as instructed, to find this new king. He goes, and as directed, calls Jesse and his sons, and he sanctifies them. He meets seven of Jesse's sons. One, if not all, tall, strapping young men, handsome and strong. But God passes over them without hesitation. And then they run out of sons. So Samuel asks, is, is this all you've got? It's, it's a bit like a Cinderella moment, you know. Is there nobody else? Oh, well, yeah, there's the, the stepdaughter, stepsister who's, you know, we keep locked up in the attic. Oh, yeah, there's that other son, the one we forgot about, the youngest, David, a shepherd who's out doing his job, taking care of the sheep. So Samuel waits for him to be brought in. And nobody is allowed to sit down while they are waiting for the arrival of this last son. And then David arrives, and they sit. But immediately, they're back on their feet, because God makes it clear, this is the one. Rise and anoint him. So Samuel does, and the Spirit of God comes powerfully upon David, and his destiny is sealed. And here's the thing that I find so interesting about this story. This is the story where God says these powerful words, contrasting how humans look to external features, where God can see into the heart. But David wasn't that ugly. He had bright eyes. He was handsome. Yes, he was the youngest. Yes, maybe he was a little shorter than the others, a little weedier perhaps. We don't know. So what's the deal here? What's going on? We have to backtrack just a little to find the answer. But I believe that the real comparison being made here is between David and his soon-to-be predecessor, King Saul. When Saul is introduced as the chosen king, we learn right at the beginning of chapter 9 that Saul was from a very good family. He was 
wealthy. He was handsome, but he wasn't just any kind of handsome. In chapter 9, verse 2, it says this, There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. He stood head and shoulders above everyone else. This guy was Clark Gable, Cary Grant, Paul Newman, George Clooney, all combined. But what we discover about Saul is that his heart was not God's. His heart was his own, and his worship of God was self-motivated and not really worship at all. Saul was a man who could not take confrontation or accountability. When presented with an opportunity to acknowledge his wrongdoing, he's the kind of guy that blames others, offers justifications, tries to make himself look put upon or coerced, as though he wasn't actually the king with the power and freedom of choice that came with that position. In one battle against the Philistines, Saul blames his disobedience on the fact that his people are starting to desert him as they wait for Samuel to come and offer the commanded sacrifice. So Saul had to seek the favor of the Lord. Saul forced himself, it says, as though he didn't really want to do it and disobey God and offer a sacrifice that only Samuel was supposed to be offering. I didn't want to do it, Lord, but I had to disobey your direct command. I had no choice. On another occasion, when Saul was told to go and destroy the Amalekites, Saul declares to Samuel proudly that he has done as God commanded. Only he hadn't. He'd spared the king and some valuable sheep and cattle. And Samuel could hear them bleating and lowing. When Saul is confronted, he rationalizes and justifies and lies like the best of them. It wasn't me. It was the people. And they only did it to offer worthy sacrifices to God. It was for a noble and faithful purpose, honest. And it wasn't me, it was them. And they only did it because, because they love God. And the kicker here is that Saul only finally gets honest when it's too late. When he's told his days on the throne are numbered. What Saul failed to realize is that it is not us who gets to say what faithfulness to God looks like. Only God gets to say what that is. And he's pretty clear that it's not religious activity that is in direct contravention of what God has specifically told someone to do. If Saul wanted to be faithful to God, he should have obeyed God fully. If Saul had wanted to be a man after God's heart, he should have taken correction when he disobeyed, owned up to his sin, and recognized that he was being manipulative, deceitful, and rebellious. Contrast that with King David. 
Here was a, an ordinary man from an ordinary family in Bethlehem. A good-looking fellow, yes, but not the firstborn and not the tallest or the best-looking in his family, let alone Israel. But David's heart was for God. He waited and waited patiently for God to fulfill his promise that he would be king. He didn't take things into his own hands when he had the opportunity to kill King Saul. He resisted violence and retaliation again and again. He showed compassion, kindness, empathy. He grieved when Saul died. Yet we might hesitate at this statement, and understandably so, because this is also the same David who didn't go to battle with his army. He left them to the dangers of war while he stayed home safe in his palace. And that led to him taking another man's wife as his, home, as his own because as king he could and he wanted to. And he tried to cover up her pregnancy by bringing her husband back from the front lines. And when, then, when that didn't work, he had her husband killed. Yet when the prophet Nathan confronts David, David doesn't hesitate to own up. He recognizes he's done wrong and abused his power and position. He openly acknowledges, I have sinned against the Lord. He makes no excuses or justifications. He grieves for what he has done. He accepts the consequences of his sin upon his family line. And he fasts and prays for mercy for his illicit child. David was not the best looking or the tallest, but he also wasn't even close to the most morally righteous. But he knew what obedience was, and he repented when he was called out. He learned, and he grew, and he changed as a result. Right at the end of 2 Samuel, we see David's growth clearly. Where previously he had sinned by abandoning his armies on the front line and leaving them to face death alone. By the end of the story, David is shoulder to shoulder with his soldiers, ready to fight with them. Ready to lead, ready to be in the trenches. David did not shy away from taking responsibility for his actions, but he learned to be more and more the king that God had called him to be, present with his men and with his people. When Saul heads to Bethlehem to anoint David, the point isn't that David is weedy and small in comparison to his brothers. Yes, he's the youngest. But the point, it seems to me, is this. God is choosing someone to be king who will be significantly different from King Saul. Saul was the pin-up king, but what he had in looks, he lacked in character. God's next king would not be like that.
He wouldn't be Eliab, whose look was parallel to Saul's, or any of the other brothers. Looks don't matter to God. What was key what was, in the, was what was in the next king's heart. And more than that, the key was a genuine heart for God. A heart that was faithful to God on God's terms, which meant obedience, not sacrifices designed to curry favor or plead for approval. It meant repentance, taking responsibility when in the wrong, not blame-shifting. For David, it meant learning to show up and be present with Israel as their leader, not hiding away in his palace. Man looks on the outside. God looks at the heart. Our world is consumed by optics. How things look, what's communicated. Whether it's the photoshopped selfies or PR spin stories, that we use to ensure confidence from our peers or in the marketplace. And it's easy, it's easy to be consumed by such values, even to be held hostage by them, so that accountability and owning up to sin is seemingly impossible because it would tarnish our reputation and break the fragile trust we've established. But God knows God sees our hearts. He is not remotely interested or convinced by our magic tricks or the images that we project to the world around us. The question is whether we'll worship God on God's terms, not ours. Whether we'll face the music when he calls us out. Whether we'll face our spiritual responsibility whether we'll do what needs doing, not because we're trying to win our way back into God's affection, but because we know that we have his affection already, that we've already been chosen, anointed, and filled with his spirit. Obedience over appearance. It's that simple. Amen. Thanks for listening. The Wayside Podcast is a ministry of St. Martin's Episcopal Church in Houston, Texas. It was created by Ryan Presley and the Reverend Wesley Arning. It is executive produced by Robert Killingsworth. The theme music was written and recorded by Robert Killingsworth. If you're interested in life at St. Martin's, be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube at St. Martin's Episcopal Church.